Morning again, everyone. Easter is almost upon us. It's time when we celebrate the resurrection, the coming of the kingdom of God, the beginning of all things made new, beginning with us as our lives are remade into the likeness of the life of Christ. But before we get there, we're taking a couple of weeks to look into the darkness that exists before that new dawn. Now this week, I'd like to take uh, a look at the moral dimension of that chaos. See, last week we dealt with the, uh, the darkness that's present in the world itself, in the form of chaos, as I termed it then. And now however you view the causes of this kind of darkness that we talked about last week, However you choose to look at where those come from, why they exist, we know that the tornado did not choose to destroy your house. We know that the cancerous cells did not choose to be malignant. Those chaotic expressions of the world's darkness, they're not choosing their path. They're not free moral agents like we are. Now, there are moral elements that surround these chaotic situations that we find in the world, but they live in the realm of human choice. What we do in them, how we respond to them, how we prepare ourselves for them. The natural world can generate an incredibly bad situation. But it's the darkness found within the hearts of mankind where we start to recognize evil. And we do recognize it. Even those without any particular religious conviction one way or the other, they can look out at the world and its history and they can say, yeah, there's evil. We do recognize it. Especially when it's in its more extreme forms. But we, people of faith, well, we have a more precise but maybe less comfortable word for that evil. We call it sin. Now, you see, an unbelieving world doesn't like this word. Doesn't like the word sin. Anyone can recognize evil, but sin, as soon as that word comes up, people start to feel more than a little bit uncomfortable. And so we have this sort of a false continuum established between the difference between evil and sin. And people say, well, evil is the big, obvious stuff. You know, that stuff that we can all agree on. But sin, well, you know, that might just be a matter of of your opinion. Now, evil, now that's that extreme category that, of course, I'd never put myself into. But sin, well, that's just you being picky about how people live their lives. I mean, no one's getting hurt, or at least I'm not getting caught. So I don't have to feel so bad about that end of things, right? But you see, we know differently. We know that even though our understanding can sometimes be flawed, probably more often than we'd like, we do know deep down that there is just one standard. Evil and sin aren't two levels or two different things. Evil and sin are one in the same. So I think we'd be well served to have sin defined before we move on. 
Now, the, the biblical words, the, the original Greek and Hebrew words that we translate into the English word sin, the, the words in those languages that are, are most often used in when we translate the word sin, they, the root of them both have to do with the, the exact same idea. They're very linguistically related. They, they both have to do with this idea of, of missing. Um, in fact, you may have heard, you know, especially us in Churches of Christ growing up, I know I always heard this word hamartia, to miss the mark. This idea of, you know, sort of like an, an archer, you know, aiming at a target, but they miss it. And that's sort of the, this conceptual framework that the word sin comes from. And I think that's good as far as it goes, looking at it in that very literal linguistic sense. Uh, there's a, a book by Cornelius Platinga, Jr. Uh, it was written several years ago that I think is really one of the best treatments of the subject that I've ever read. And I love the title of this book. It's called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. And I think that title in and of itself makes for a pretty good definition of what sin is. But here's an expanded version of his definition from the book. He says, sin is a disruption of created harmony and then resistance to divine restoration of that harmony. Above all, sin disrupts and resists the vital human relation to God. Now, he doesn't just leave that definition of sin in isolation. He contrasts that to another concept, to this biblical concept of shalom, that Hebrew word that we usually just translate peace, but we know it means something a little more than that. This is how he describes that context, that opposite of sin. He says it's the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation, injustice, fulfillment, and delight. That is what the Hebrew prophets call shalom. In the Bible, shalom means universal, flourishing, wholeness, and delight. Shalom, in other words, is the way that things ought to be. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? And see, that's where we get to the difference between sin and shalom. You see, sin is evil. We can say that they're one and the same because sin breaks God's shalom. Sin is the thing that disrupts and destroys the way things should be, the ideal conditions of human flourishing and wholeness and delight, the things that God would have for us, the thing that a loving father wants to give us are destroyed when sin enters the picture. Because this shalom of God, this wholeness of God It's not arbitrary. It's not just something that happens to exist. No, it's rooted in God's love for his creation. So I would propose that you could even say that in the broadest, most all-encompassing definition of sin is simply the absence of real love. Because when you think about it, love is the true mark of a disciple of Jesus. John 13 Verses 34 and 35, Jesus says, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so must you love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. The Apostle Paul tells us that if we don't have love, well, frankly, nothing else really matters. That familiar passage at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 13 as if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, 
And if I have faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. We're also told that love is what fulfills the law. When we think about sin, a lot of times we think about the breaking of the law. Well, it's love that fulfills that law. Romans 13, starting in verse 8, the Apostle Paul says, Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be are all summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. You see, the core of all of God's commands, according to Jesus himself, is that we love. Matthew 22, starting in verse 34. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And just so there's no confusion about what that love your neighbor part might mean, how narrowly we might define it, we should remember that earlier in Matthew 5, he already taught, you've heard it that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. That love for neighbor doesn't mean I get to pick and choose who my neighbors are. This loveless evil of sin. Well, it's infinitely flexible in its expression, but I think we can break it down. Pretty much all sin can be broken down into to three spheres of sin, I guess I'll call. Um, I'm actually going to have circles here, not spheres. I didn't want to do the 3D upgrade on the projector. We'd all have to get glasses, and it's, it's expensive. So... Starting off with humanity's sin, that first sphere of sin, what I'm going to call the we of sin. You can't open up a history book, or for that matter, you can't read today's headlines without recognizing the sinfulness and brokenness of humanity. We are simply very, very good at making very, very bad decisions. We constantly make choices that hurt each other and that hurt ourselves. Choices that break that shalom of God, disrupt our relationship to each other, disrupt our relationship to God, and we see the consequences of it every single day. And you see, the thing is, it's not just the unbelieving world out there where we see this problem, if it only were. But you see, you also can't open your own Bible without seeing the same problem among God's people. It's everywhere. From the first sin in the garden to all those cycles present in Israel's history of their faithfulness and then their falling away and idolatry and sinfulness and then the repentance only to eventually lead to further sin. 
We can look in the New Testament to the problems of the early church. I mean, in some ways we should be thankful for the problems in the early church or the New Testament would be mighty thin. Most of what we have in the New Testament is in response to these issues they dealt with that had to be addressed. Because even in the church, yes, there is sin. It's full of sinful people. As these letters were written to address those issues, or we go up through the rest of church history, well, that doesn't really give a very pretty picture either sometimes. Even up to this very day. Or as the writer Eugene Peterson so eloquently put it, every congregation is a congregation of sinners. And as if that weren't bad enough, they all have sinners for pastors. (laughs) It's everywhere. It's inescapable. You look at humanity, you see a picture of brokenness and sinfulness that has broken God's shalom from the very beginning up to today, in this very moment. But then we have this next sphere. Your sin. The you of sin. Because, see, since sin is all around us, since humanity is filled with sin, that means that naturally, all of us individually are surrounded by sin. All the people that we interact with on a daily basis. It's in our churches, in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our schools. And see, here is when instead of seeing sin in just a very general, abstract sense, no, we see it up close and personal. I see your sin and you see mine, and it starts to have an obvious and sometimes very personal impact. We directly see its effect. We directly feel its sting. But then we move into that next sphere, my sin. This is where sin hits us the hardest, because it's the closest, but it's also where it's probably the most easily ignored. See, we're full, just the way we're wired, we are full of cognitive biases that let us see our own sin differently than someone else's sin. You see, when you sin, well, you're just, you know, bad and stupid and wrong. But when I sin, well, you know, there's a really good reason for it, and I'm, it's not really my fault. There's some, you know, I have my reasons, you just don't understand. We look at the sin of someone else very harshly. But we look at ourselves and we can easily gloss over it. We can easily make excuses and try our best not to admit that the sin that hurts us the most is our very own. Even though this fear of sin should be the most clear to us, it can easily be the least acknowledged that leaves us in a troublesome cycle of sin and its consequences, all the while wondering why aren't things going the way they should? Why aren't things better than they are? blind to our own guilt. Now, see, in each of these spheres, there is a place for lament. That's part of what we've been talking about in these lessons, of looking at this darkness, recognizing that there is a time and a proper place for lament because things are not all good. Now, when, from our perspective, when we look at these three spheres, we, we look at the we of sin. We look at all of humanity, and we might be tempted to just throw our hands up in defeat thinking, wow, this is just, it's so big. There's so much sin and brokenness everywhere. What in the world am I supposed to do about it? Then we look at that next closer sphere. We look at the you of sin. And as those relationships get closer and closer, we can react in different ways. 
When we're impacted by someone that we don't have much of a relationship with, well, it's very easy to just react in anger. You know, when someone cuts you off on the highway, you're probably not going to sit down and have a long discussion about the choices they've made in their lives and how they should look out for the safety of others. No. You just know that guy cut you off and you're mad. But when those relationships start getting closer and closer and more personal, all the way up to your very own family, that anger might turn instead to disappointment. Just wondering, wow, why did someone I care about mess up like that? Why did they hurt me like that? Still not the best example of of responding in love, admittedly. But then we get to the me response as we lament our own sin. When we do recognize it, that's the one that hits us the hardest. And unfortunately, we naturally look at this one in terms of identity. And we can very easily go into a spiral of despair and shame. Saying, wow, if this is what I've done, maybe this is who I am. I wonder if I'm worth anything at all. But you see, God laments sin as well. God does not want sin to be in this world. He does not want his shalom, his wholeness, his peace to be disrupted. But when he laments sin, he does it a little bit differently than we might tend to. First, I can say that he responds differently to the we of sin, the big picture of sin. I know he responds differently to it because, well, frankly, we're still here. God could say, you know what? Forget it. If God threw his hands up in despair and just gave up on us, well, we wouldn't be here today, would we? Even when we look at more extreme examples in Scripture, when we think about it, it's like, well, wait a minute, um, what, what about the flood? Didn't he kind of do that then? Well, some might say that he was wiping out humanity and starting over again with Noah and his family. But if you look at it from a different perspective... He was doing less destroying, really, than he was saving. He was saving that remnant of mankind because, see, humanity was already destroying itself as they were destroying the peace and the shalom that God had given them. One of the verses that just is burned into my mind, and I just can't shake the feeling that it gets, gives me every time I read it, Genesis 6, verse 5, And the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. It's a lot of absolute statements packed into one sentence. It was bad. Mankind was destroying itself. But for some reason, God says, no, I'm still going to make a way for you to continue. I'm still going to make a way to preserve my shalom. And all along the story of mankind, we can see where there were plenty of times that God would have been well within his rights to say, never mind, I give up, this experiment is over, you have failed. Yet, we're still here. Now, when we deal with the you of sin, when we deal with that sin, not just on a global scale, but the face-to-face sin, as is so often the case, I don't think we can come up with a better example than the example of Christ himself. When he came into our mess and he got to see on a one-on-one basis, he got to see the results of our sin as he was in our mess and our brokenness with us. One of the most haunting things that he says in the Gospels is found in Luke 13, 34, when he laments over his own people 
and how far that they had fallen. When he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her, her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Jesus did lament the sin that he saw face to face, the fact that the people who should have known better had fallen so far from God's intention for them. But still, he didn't give up on them. Even when he hung there on the cross, his words about these people whose sin was directly, the most directly of all, impacting him, his words were, Father, forgive them. But then we get down to that core, the me of sin and my sin. And sometimes it's easy for us to look at all the other realms of sin and see how God has responded. But sometimes we wonder a little bit, well, what about my sin? How does God feel about that? I said before that our natural reaction so many times is to react in shame, saying, well, I'm just bad. I'm just a sinner. I'm just evil. There's no good in me. I'm not worth anything. But then God counters that by showing us our worth. We can look over and over again as Jesus responds to the individual sinner in Scripture. As we look at his life in the Gospels, the times when he is the most angry is not with the individual sinner so much as the systems of sin that the religious leaders had allowed to flourish. But when it came to that one sinner who came to him, they found love. They found forgiveness. They found acceptance and a better way. He found that even though the teachers of the law might have given up on them, even though the good people might have said, stay away from them, they're unclean, they're sinners, they're bad, they're evil. That's not what Jesus says about them. He says, your sins are forgiven, go and sin no more. He recognizes them in their sinfulness, but he gives them another way. Because Jesus expresses how God knows how to deal with this kind of darkness. Now, we have a responsibility in each of these fears. We have a responsibility to do something about this darkness of sin that we see everywhere around us. But I can't eliminate sin in any of them. I'm simply not that strong, and neither are you. We can respond in many ways. We can inject love where love has been lost in sin. We can have responsive love. We can come in to try and help pick up the pieces, point people towards a better way. We can have preemptive love, where we see where there is the potential of evil and brokenness and do all we can to protect the shalom of God, to keep the impact of sin from hurting more and more. We do have a responsibility to that, and we do have a responsibility of discipline within our own lives. That we would go to God and have Him transform us more into the likeness of Christ to deal with the sin that's in our own life. But ultimately, we can't deal with the sin by ourselves. We can simply go to love, go to the light of love. 
And by the way, if I'm really loving you, it's going to be really hard for me to sin against you. <laughs> Love is really the only antidote to sin. And God has shown us his love as he has shown us that antidote to sin. 1 John 1, starting in verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and declared to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. And if we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. You see, it was humanity's sin who put Jesus on that cross. But God's love for his creation transforms that sinful symbol of death into a symbol of hope and of life for us. He injects his love into that sinful situation to change it, to transform it, and thereby to change us and transform us as well. The act of love overcomes sin. It conquers sin, and it gives us the path by which we get to overcome, the path by which we get to conquer. You see, his death takes on all the consequences of our sin. But more than that, his resurrection takes on the causes of our sin. His resurrection gives us the opportunity to have that new life in Christ. His new life means we can have new life, being indwelt by the Spirit and being changed to be a new creation just as He lived a new life, raised from the dead. See, God has shown us how to respond, how to face this darkness of sin. Yes, with lament. Yes, with sadness that it is there, but also with resolve, also with hope. Because God has not given up on us. God has not given up on you, despite your sin. And so our response must reflect that hope of God for all of us. We can look at the sin that's in the world and respond not just with despair, but with hope that there is not a person living who is out of the reach of the love and the grace of God. That there is no situation so dark that God's light cannot come in and change it. And then on a more personal level, I have to respond to this darkness, remembering and reflecting God's hope, not just for everyone, but for me. That God has not given up on me either. So you have a chance to respond today. You could ignore what he's done. You could persist in sin. You can remain in darkness. You can continue to break that shalom of God in your life and in your world and continue to live with its consequences, but you don't have to. 
You can embrace that light of God, that light that overcomes the darkness, that love that conquers death and frees you from your sin, frees you from its consequences, but also frees you from its inevitability, frees you from a path of darkness to let you walk in a path of light by His Spirit. If there's any way this morning that we can help you in that choice to walk in the light, if there's anything that we can do to encourage you, to help get you back on the right path, or maybe even to get on that path for the first time, to recognize that God is light and that in Him there is no darkness at all, to recognize that Jesus has come to show that light and that love, and that His sacrifice on the cross is the only way to deal with the darkness of your sin. If you want to respond to that this morning, to embrace that light, embrace that love, to be freed from that sin, to take on his name, but also his death and his life in baptism. If you believe that he is the son of God and you want to give your life to him this morning, we can do something about that. Or if you just want to know more about what that might mean, understand more about this God who has called you to this light and to this love. Please don't leave here today without talking to someone I don't know what step you need to take this morning, but I pray that you take one step further out of darkness and into his glorious light this morning. If there's any way that we can help you do that, please come and let us know while we stand and while we sing.